Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. One of the seemingly consistent things about creative destruction, particularly as a result of technology, is that we have a short memory for what came before. We remember just immediately preceding a dramatic shift in some vital element of our lives. It has the patina of making us nostalgic for the remembered past, even as we forget the broad history. This certainly seems to be true of journalism. We look at the landscape of what venture capitalist Jason Calacanis calls late-stage journalism, and we see a world that is certainly far from what folks once thought was the golden age of journalism in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. But as a part of history, the picture is different. And perhaps when we see that difference, we get a better picture of how we can adapt to the economic, political, and social needs of journalism today. To talk about this, I'm joined by my guest, Nicholas Lemon. Nick Lemon is the Joseph Pulitzer and Edith Pulitzer Moore Professor of Journalism and Dean Emeritus of the Faculty of Journalism at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. He's been a staff writer at The New Yorker, Dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia. He launched Columbia Global Reports, a unique publishing imprint that produces six ambitious works of journalism a year, and he has personally published five books. It is my pleasure to welcome Nicholas Lemon here to talk about a recent article he did for the New York Review of Books entitled, Can Journalism Be Saved? Nick, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. One of the things that you talk about in the article is the degree to which we look at the situation today with respect to journalism through the lens of what some people refer to as kind of the golden age of journalism, things that went on in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and maybe a little bit beyond, and that that becomes the kind of measure by which we judge everything today. And and that was a particularly unique historical moment and really doesn't reflect the broad history of journalism. Talk a little bit about that first. I should say that, uh, you know, in the days when I was the dean of a journalism school, especially, uh, I had to go to a lot of uh, ba- banquets and hotel ballrooms of, of, you know, various journalism organizations. And you typically hear somebody get up and say that when the founders wrote the First Amendment, they pretty much had in mind the world of journalism as we see it now, which, of course, is very ahistorical. Um, journalism has a long tangled history. The, the actual word journalism basically didn't exist very much at the time that the U.S. was founded, and there weren't any reporters as we know them now or news organizations. So the fact that they came along is a kind of happy accident. But, um, you know, journalism has a, a, a long, complicated, ever-changing history, and we're in one of the moments of change right now. What we think of as normal, at least we aging baby boomers, is, as you said, an atypical period that began, you know, around 1970 and lasted until around 2000. Um, it was disrupted by the Internet. Um, in this period, uh broadcast journalism was heavily regulated for at least most of this period and, and was a, a stable and limited world. And in most cities in the country, there was one monopoly or quasi-monopoly newspaper that was very profitable and could afford to uh, invest heavily in journalism. So that was a temporary set of conditions, highly temporary, as it turned out, that people like me thought was normal and eternal. 
Um, and so uh, mea culpa for my generation, we didn't pay a lot of attention to um, uh, exactly what made our business possible um, in terms of government policy and economic reality and so on. And in fact, most of the time, uh, as journalists love to do, they're saying, isn't it great that we live in a golden age? We complained relentlessly about things like um, uh, corporate owners who weren't willing to invest enough in their newsrooms. Uh, but, you know, now we're nostalgic. Are we looking at a period now that is perhaps a little more stable in terms of the influence of outside forces, and might it provide a more solid foundation or a slightly more solid foundation from which to go to whatever the next plateau is? I mean, one of the things, and you just touched on this, the impact of broadcast journalism, the impact of deregulation of that, deregulation of radio and and the way it gave rise to, to conservative talk radio, and then the Internet. All of those things were external forces that, that played a big role. It seems as if nothing is is as influential right now in terms of destruction and that it might be a time in which things can stabilize to some extent. Right. Well, I appreciate your optimism. Um, <laughs> I, I would say that um, two things I want to highlight on a more pessimistic note. One is I am just frustrated that my colleagues in journalism really don't like to talk about this in a rational way. And instead, there's always some, you know, version of like when the cavalry rides to the rescue in the old Western movies, something's going to happen that's going to save us magically. So I think it would be really helpful to have an honest conversation about what the options are. Um, the, the biggest thing going on that affects, you know, people employed in journalism is uh, that, that the advertising has left and gone to the Internet, particularly to Google and Facebook, which really dominate online advertising globally. Um, there are various schemes for uh, the news business to get that advertising back, but I'm, I haven't seen any of them work so far. And, and so I think that the mega market fact is that uh, the main way that at least newspapers and broadcasts, commercial broadcasts, supported themselves, which is through advertising, has been radically decreased, especially in the case of newspapers. And, and no other form of market support has come into into view that's nearly as good. So that's that that's hard to to change, at least I think. Um, and then in terms of of kind of what the rule book is for journalism, um, you know, I'll pick up on what you said. We decided in the latter years of the 20th century that this very constricted and highly regulated world we'd set up, especially for a broadcast, was really too limited and too constricted. And that, that the, uh, the value that we should put first is a lot of uh, freedom of people to say whatever they wanted on air, on air in quotes, or hear whatever they wanted on air. Um, and that's the world we live in now. Um, so the reason that there wasn't talk radio and 
craziness on the internet and so on back in the old days was that the government forbade it. Um, so, you know, we might have a conversation about what, what kind of world do we want to live in here? Do we want a world that privileges freedom uh, very highly, knowing that we're not going to like a lot of what that produces? Or do we want a world that, that is going to be frustrating in other ways? What's interesting, too, is that some of those models, and radio, I suppose, is a good example, even even talk radio, which was built on, on meanness originally and then sort of morphed with, the meanness morphed with conservative politics, that even those avenues are no longer advertiser-supported, that, that the Internet and technology and destruction has had an impact on reshaping those things as well. So it's not a, it's not a completely flat landscape. Right. So, so going back to the advertising point, you have, you know, Google and Facebook dominant platforms and Twitter to some extent and so on, but Google and Facebook are really the biggies. Uh, they claim that they are not in the business of creating content at all. Um, and yet they have taken huge amounts, the majority of advertising uh, away from entities that are in the business of creating content and that believed that their content was the key to their business success. So uh, again, that's a mega economic fact that the traditional media industry hasn't really figured out um, how to deal with yet, as far as I can tell. To what extent is it troubling or positive as we look at newspapers in particular today and see that philanthropy on both a national and particularly on a local level has been helpful combined with the resources of billionaires. Yeah, so that's sort of philanthropy and quasi-philanthropy, right? Um, so I think it's, it's, it's uh, I'm not against it. I think it's a positive development. I think it's less the answer in quotes than a lot of people are perceiving it as being. And that's for a number of reasons. One, um, philanthropy, the, the total philanthropic commitment to journalism is really quite small. Um, it's growing from a very low base, but it's quite small, not enough merely to replace the many thousands, tens of thousands of jobs that have been lost in the field. Uh, I think the billionaire owner types in particular only want to buy certain kinds of publications. They don't want to buy, you know, uh, uh, the paper in a small town in an industrial area just out of the goodness of their heart. They tend to want some of the ego gratification that, that comes from owning a large, more glamorous product. Um, and then also, you know, philanthropists, sometimes are not the most benign owners. Uh, the word philanthropist provides uh, a cover, uh, but, you know, they can dictate coverage and things like that. Some do, some don't. Um, so I, I think it's a positive development that is not a systemic solution to the problem. In some ways, the philanthropy, with all of its problems, seems less 
toxic, particularly in terms of local news, local information, than something like Sinclair. I mean, it's surprising that that model hasn't happened with local newspapers as well. Right. Well, I think that uh, uh, with with Sinclair, um, a, a company like that would be, probably be afraid. You could buy a lot of local newspapers mm-hmm. for very little money right now. Um, but the question is, uh, what, how would you pay for it? How would, not so much how would you pay for the purchase price, but how would you pay for the operations? So I think that's why you haven't seen that in that area. Um, and, you know, yeah, if those are the choices, I would definitely say go, go with philanthropy. But I, I still think there's a, a problem for what do you do with those parts of journalism that either exist in the golden age or never existed that, that the country needs uh, that philanthropy has not chosen to pay for and is unlikely to choose to pay for. And, and that's, that's an unsolved problem. One of the things that we seem to be living through right now is the way in which all of this is, is reflected through the lens of the current kind of political dynamic and that people feel that journalism is, is booming and flourishing because it's all focused on the White House and Trump, forgetting that it's being left behind in so many other areas. Yeah, I could not agree more. So just to pick up on that, um, first of all, I know this is really counterintuitive to a lot of people. The best thing about American journalism right now is the coverage of Donald Trump. And I know that there's a lot of people out there who think that the press is giving him a free ride, et cetera. But, you know, he, he gets a lot, lot, lot of coverage. And, and uh, a lot of it is quite good. Um, the problem is much more... You know, if you uh, live in California and you want to see great coverage of the state government in Sacramento, it's just really hard to find because a lot of those people who used to do that have just disappeared. Um, This is one of the largest governments in the world, as you know, and and um, that's that's where the, the heart of the problem is. There's one other thing here. Um, and. You know, in this article that you're mentioning that I wrote and and I've been advocating this for years, I think we should consider uh, some kind of a government subsidy system for for journalism, especially local journalism about public institutions and government. Um, The typical person I talk to about this says, so you want Donald Trump to control the funding for journalism? And the answer is, no, I don't. Um, that's a moment that we're in and there are many, many ways of funding things through the government that are politically sensitive that don't involve the president or members of Congress personally turning the faucet on and off. So, you know, while we have this administration in office, we also have, I'd say essentially all the climate research that's going on in the U.S. is paid for by the U.S. government. And a great deal of it is fantastic. It's why we know there's a crisis. So there are a lot of mechanisms for shielding activities from uh, that are are paid for by government from the direct control of government. You see this all over the world 
and all over the U.S. in areas outside of journalism. Isn't that akin to kind of the public broadcasting model that we have right now with respect to NPR and and just the overall Corporation for Public Broadcasting? Isn't it parallel to that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, these entities on a on a you know global comparative scale are less government subsidized uh, than most public broadcasting elsewhere in the world. Um, they get, a, as you know, a very small percent of their funds directly from government and much more from philanthropy and, and listeners. But yeah, they were founded by the U.S. government, and I think they're a fantastic addition in my lifetime to the uh, uh, landscape of what's available in journalism. So yes, that is the model. It's To put it in a nutshell, it's think about public broadcasting, don't think about state broadcasting, um, such as exists in totalitarian countries. The problem, I guess, is that every, because everything today is so politicized that those things are always under the threat of being cut off. I mean, how many stories have we all seen about funding being cut off for NPR and, and, and public television, et cetera? I yeah I I know that first of all any possible thing that you think about doing in life has to be considered in in not in in comparison to another situation that's perfect but another r- realistic assessment of what are the you know flawed alternatives to what you're thinking about what really changed my thinking on this was going from a lifetime spent in newsrooms to being a primary resident of a university, of a research university. Columbia University, where I work, gets a billion dollars a year from the federal government and research funds. And that's in addition to a lot of direct and indirect subsidies. Um, you know, it's lots and lots of this research is politically unpopular or controversial. It involves things like change and 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 uh, you know many other topics um, and if you talk to people in the research world they say oh my gosh it's never been this terrible as it is now with our you know billion dollars a year and 99.9 percent total freedom to pursue what we want but you know it looks like a pretty good system to me and then what makes it work is there's three levels of cutoff between the funding and and the actual research so that it's not possible for a member of congress or a president to just turn the turn the water off um but yes if you do this there will always be controversies and there will always be attempts to to shut down the funding as there has have been for many years about npr and you know as a listener npr seems pretty great to me uh even if it lives under a constant threat. Talk a little bit about the paywalls, about subscriptions, and the way people seem to be willing to pay for that on a certain level and what it means and doesn't mean. Okay, so I'm a pessimist about paywalls. I wish I were not, but I just want to say, um, certainly in the newspaper business, Almost no newspapers have been able to make a paywall work. And you could say it's their fault because they're not providing good enough content. But by general consensus, the only one 
that really has been able to make it work is the New York Times. Um, maybe the Washington Post, they don't have to publish as much data as the New York Times because they're privately held. And, you know, a lot of the regional papers that are really great have dropped their paywalls because they just couldn't get their audience to pay for what they offer. Um, you're competing with so much free material online that it's just very, very, very hard to make it work. And I, I think that people extrapolate way too much from the success of the New York Times or some, you know, kind of business-oriented publications like the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal to say this can work for the Sacramento Bee. Um, I, I don't know that it can. Can we learn anything by looking at the success, in quotes, of things like the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times using a paywall, and even some sports sites that have been incredibly successful with paid content. Can they teach us anything about the degree people are willing to pay for something that that we might look at? They can. I mean, but the, the findings are pretty slim. So you're right. You know, anything that's sort of economically actionable business content is more likely to be paid for. Anything that feeds into, you know, rabid local sports fan populations is, is more likely to be paid for. Newspapers and other news organizations now can tell exactly how many people are reading every single thing. Um, but from a standpoint of the society, at I mean, what used to happen is it's clear in the golden age, whether or not it was really golden, is that, you know, if you were a paper like, I don't know, the San Francisco Chronicle, um, people were, the, the, the investigative reporting was not why people subscribed to the paper, and it wasn't why advertisers advertised in the paper. It was being cross-subsidized by the things that were making the paper work economically, which included not just, uh, you know, business and sports news, but also just pure information, like when movies were playing, stock tables, classified ads, um, you know, and, and the weather and, and things like that. You can't put the horse back in the barn. That's just free information that, that people don't have to go and get from a news organization. So, you know, we've had a, a really robust, I'm sorry to say, real-time experiment with this over the last, you know, 10 years or more. And, and papers have had quite dispiriting results with getting people to become real paying subscribers online. Um, even the New York Times discounts very heavily and, and uses a number of tricks to you know, make the number look a little bigger than it is. So I, I wish it were true that the subscriber model would work for, you know, big metro papers and local papers. Um, I wish I could say there's a clear playbook they can follow, but I honestly, I'm not seeing it. Is the industry, and I know it's it's a broad brush, but is the, the journalism business being realistic today about where it is and what these options are? Well, the people that I hang out with are the journalists themselves, and I would say not really. Um, we love what we do, and we want to be able to do it collectively. We want that, and we want it individually. 
and we seize on everything that might look promising as a hope that 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 might work, um, including some of what we talked about, the philanthropic support, benign billionaire support, subscriber support, uh, you know, digital only platforms like, like Vox and, 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 uh, and Buzzfeed. Um, but I, I don't think, I don't hear a, a really robust, realistic conversation among my colleagues about what the options are. I think it's just, it's something we're not trained to think about. You know, when Joseph Pulitzer started Columbia Journalism School back in 1903, he wrote this kind of wonderful, inspiring essay about the, the, what he thought the journalism school should be. And he, should, he said, you know, something like, no journalist in my school should ever have to learn anything about the business side of journalism because that would, you know, corrupt them and soil and they must only learn how to be uh, uh, great journalists, and other people will worry about how to pay for it. So, um, you know, <laughs> that message really took uh, for the last century with a lot of journalists, including me. In recent years, we did uh, violate his wishes and start requiring a course of all of our students on the economics of journalism because we felt like it's not a good idea to send journalists out into the world in blissful, complete ignorance of how their business gets paid for and just assuming somebody will pay for it. Um, so anyway, that's, that's just a way of saying journalists are not trained to think about these things. They don't like to think about these things. We like to do our work. It's like saying to actors, you know, you need to think about the economic structure of the theater and movie industry. It doesn't come naturally. Um, and, and so I think that conversation could be a lot, there could be a lot more of it than there is now. I hope there will be. And yet, before I let you go, one last thing. There are so many journalists that, that understand the value of, for, for lack of a better word, celebrity, that understand that being on television or being on radio or being in other media is important to their success as journalists. Talk about that finally. Well, yeah, I mean, that's one of the, you know, so, so uh, we all talk about and know about inequality in, 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 in the U.S. and globally and how it's ever rising. Um, the people that you're talking about um, are, you know, a percent of a percent of the total number of working journalists, that is people that, you know, recognizable name, you know, television stars who make millions of dollars a year. Um, wonderful. I'm happy for them, <laughs> but that's, that's not a typical uh, life of a journalist, and it, it, it's a sort of separate topic from what I think is the most pressing social and political issue, which is who's going to cover governors, state governments, mayors, city governments, the big business entities in a city. Um, those people, uh, the, the TV superstar anchors, they're not going to do that coverage, and there aren't enough of them anyway. So I don't think I think that's a, um, a a wonderful happenstance that affects a handful of people, not a business model for journalists. But the other part of that is the print journalists that are all over cable television, for example. But and even on the local level, 
where what few local journalists, print local print journalists there are in some communities, also have a presence on local television or local radio yeah. or what have you. Yeah. So so I don't know. And of course, then and then there's Twitter and, and right. online platforms. I don't know if you're a local journalist, how much money that puts in your pocket or whether it puts any money in your pocket. Um, I, 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 you know, I'm still I think that's a separate topic mm-hmm. from the economic crisis in journalism and the tremendous reduction in the number of employed journalists in the U.S., in this still young century. Um, These are jobs, the kind of jobs you're talking about, whether they're a second job or a first job, basically involve, you know, going on TV and commenting on things. Mm -hmm. The, The great value of journalism for the country is original reporting and and beat reporting, really going out and gathering information and putting it before the public that wasn't out there before, not just saying, here's my take on this, here's my take on that. Um, So I I still think, you know, you can say what you want about it. I personally think a lot of reporters are, are too eager to give quick takes either online or on broadcast platforms on think on things they don't really know that much about. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I, I just think we really have to keep the focus on original journalistic reporting and thinking about what would reverse the really alarming decline in that that we've seen, especially below the very glamorous national covering the White House level. Nicholas Lemon, his article, Can Journalism Be Saved?, is in the New York Review of Books. Nick, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it, too. Thank you.